people can do amazing things. Walk on the moon, contain a nuclear meltdown. And what do they have in common? They're not in it alone. Creativity, talent, genius, it's all a team sport. We have seen what we thought was unseeable. It was a step in a direction that nobody had taken before. I'm Gabriella Cowperthwaite, host of Teamistry. It's an original podcast from Atlassian, all about the chemistry of teams. Check it out on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Interested in healthcare? Well, here's a programme you might not want to miss. Hosted by longtime healthcare reporter Dan Gorenstein, Tradeoffs takes a close look at the costly, complicated, and counterintuitive world of the US healthcare system and the policies that govern it. Tradeoffs digs into the weeds with experts who understand the data driving the policy trends while telling compelling stories of those impacted by those policies. In the words of the Tradeoffs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Tradeoffs. You can find Tradeoffs wherever you listen to your podcasts. Boldly going where no science show has gone before. The Naked Scientists. Hello, welcome to this week's Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and also with Helen Scales. Hello, Helen. Hello. Now, coming up, our scientists have stumbled upon a way to get much more oxygen around your body, and that could be good for mountaineers, of course, people with heart failure and possibly also some Olympic cheats, how that works in a second. Also, how researchers have identified two new ways to stop Alzheimer's disease and sing a song of distance. Scientists have tracked the migrations of songbirds and they've found that they routinely fly over 300 miles a day, which is much further than we first thought and certainly not bad going for something that's not much bigger than your fist. Helen. Thanks, Chris. Also this week we're looking for love, at least the chemicals that control the processes of sexual attraction, bonding and ultimately falling in love. We'll be hearing how women broadcast subtle clues about their fertility, including making their voices sound slightly different when they're most likely to fall pregnant. We'll also find out why people who look more symmetrical are judged to be more attractive and why it is that we've evolved to fall in love at all. Thank you, Helen. And we'll also be finding out whether there's such a thing as a divorce gene because scientists are beginning to think that there might be. Individuals who have two copies of one particular variant of the vasopressin receptor gene are twice as likely to report that they have a crisis in their relationship in the past year or twice as likely never even to get married in the first place. That's Larry Young, and he'll be here to tell us a bit about the wandering eye gene later in the programme. Meanwhile, if you've got a question for us or you'd like to get in touch with us, the email address for the programme is chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.net. We'll start up with a roundup of this week's science news. And it could be that a sip of water containing a compound that boosts the ability of blood to transport oxygen around the body could help people with heart failure to exercise again. Well, that's according to a study published this week in the journal PNAS by a team of scientists led by Jean-Marie Len from the University of Louis Pasteur in France. Now, they found that a compound called myoinositol tripyrophosphate, or thankfully ITPP for short, can help boost the amount of vigorous exercise that can be done by by both healthy mice and mice with heart failure. Well, the team gave doses of ITPP to mice both as an injection and in drinking water, and some of the mice were normal 
and some had been genetically modified to have heart failure. Then they were tested um, to see what their exercise capacity was and that was basically by putting these mice on tiny mouse treadmills, which I always think is rather an interesting idea to think of, an image in my head, and uh, see how long they can keep running for. Now, both types of mice could carry out, uh, carry on running for much longer when they'd had a dose of ITPP, up to 57% longer in healthy mice and around 30% more um, in the mice with heart failure. And this response was dose-dependent, which meant that the more ITPP they had, the longer they could run for. Now, what seems to be going on is that ITPP binds to haemoglobin, and that's that oxygen-carrying pigment in the blood. And it makes it better able to absorb oxygen and also more likely to let go of it as well so that oxygen is delivered and released in the muscles during exercise. Now, people with heart failure don't have a strong enough heart to pump enough blood around the body and deliver enough oxygen to carry out exercise. So it could be that ITPP could offer a ray of hope in the future one day that could help heart patients to be more active. It could also help perhaps mountaineers up in high altitudes where oxygen levels are very low and unfortunately this kind of begs um, to be used by athletes, people who have normal healthy hearts but perhaps who want to push themselves a little bit further. So perhaps they will be testing for ITPP in their future athletic events. I wonder if it'll be a urine test for ITPP. Thank you Helen. It's interesting because that's also directly stealing from what biology already does. When you go altitude training the body boosts the level of another chemical called 2,3-BPG, bisphosphoglycerate and that binds to your haemoglobin and does almost the same thing. This just I think probably does it a little bit better. Thank you. Well, also this week, two very important papers on the subject of Alzheimer's disease. Alzheimer's disease is an important condition because roughly one person in five over the age of 75 is destined to be affected by it. And scientists this week, in two papers, one in the journal Science, this is by Amanta Theatar, who is at the Catholic University of Leuven in Belgium. Uh, What they have done is to discover why the brain cells that are affected by Alzheimer's disease produce a chemical in the brain called beta amyloid. Now, if you look inside someone's brain who has Alzheimer's disease, you find build-ups of this protein, beta amyloid, in little plaques. And wherever there are these plaques, then the brain cells nearby die. And so scientists think that if you reduce the amount of beta amyloid the brain is making, then it should be possible to reduce or perhaps even prevent Alzheimer's disease from occurring in the first place. What this group did was to look for genes that are linked to the production of beta amyloid. So looking at cells in the dish, what they did was to to manipulate the levels of various genes to see whether they impacted on the production of beta amyloid. And they found one very interesting one. It's called GPR3, which is G-protein-coupled receptor 3. That's why we call it GPR3. And this is only expressed in the nervous system, and it activates another gene. It's like a cellular on-off switch for a gene called gamma secretase and gamma secretase cuts a big long precursor protein called beta APP and it turns it into beta amyloid and what the researchers think because they were able to demonstrate in the dish that if you turn off this GPR3 gene you can reduce the beta amyloid production it might be possible to cut the production of beta amyloid in the brains of Alzheimer's patients by targeting this particular gene so that's a new way to tackle Alzheimer's disease. The second important paper that came out this week is from Juan Carlos Diaz. Uh, He's based in Bethesda, Maryland. He's got a paper in PNAS. And they've been looking at why it is that this beta amyloid should be bad for brain cells anyway. And one theory is that it snuggles up next to a nerve cell and then forms a pore, or an artificial channel, in the cell membrane of the nerve. And this allows large amounts of calcium to get into the cell. And calcium is a very powerful stimulus. It signals to nerve cells to become very, very active. And so blocking that channel 
orc to make cells less vulnerable and therefore not die. So just working in the dish, what they did was to make two molecules. One of them is called MRS2485, another one's called MRS2481, and these are capable of blocking these thought to be uh, new channels created by beta amyloid. And when they did tests on cells cultured in a dish and they added beta amyloid to the cells and some of these molecules, the cells all survived, like control cells that had had nothing added to them. But when they did the experiment with none of their new molecule, just beta amyloid, the cells died. So this strongly suggests that they're on the right lines and they've identified two molecules that could be a new way to treat Alzheimer's disease in the future. Obviously, they've got to prove they're safe, they've got to prove that they work, but at the same time, certainly a ray of hope for an important disease. Helen. Well, my last story for the news this week comes from the world of the animals and the news that a new group of birds has joined the ranks of long-distance endurance flyers, and that's the songbirds. For the first time, scientists have been able to mount tiny tracking devices onto these tiny little birds and gather information about where they move around in the US. And this is um, Bridget Suchbury from the York University in Toronto in Canada and her team who attach tiny geolocators to 14 wood thrushes and 20 purple martins, all types of songbirds that live in the US. Um, and that was in their breeding grounds in Pennsylvania in the US in 2007. Then in 2008, they found um, five thrushes and two martins that still had their um, tags on them, and they downloaded the information, which was basically about light levels and time from which they could actually reconstruct the latitude and longitude um, based on the times of sunrises and sunsets showing where they were. Um, and they found that these songbirds could fly over 300 miles a day, which is astonishing, considering that they're really quite tiny. We never knew that songbirds really flew this far and this quickly, they also found that the birds flew over six times faster in the spring when they returned from the US compared to when they fly south, because where they go is Central and South America to areas where they feed up during the winter. Now, this sort of information is really important because um, over the last couple of decades, songbirds have been doing really badly. They've been declining. This will help us understand a bit more about their life cycle, their, what they're up to, and it will gauge how much environmental problems, things like habitat loss and climate change, are likely to affect them. So hopefully we can start doing something about it. An intriguing finding, though. 300 miles in a day is not to be sniffed at, is it? Thank you, Helen. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and Helen Scales. And also in the news this week, scientists at uh, Georgia Institute of Technology in Atlanta have discovered the genetic, boom, boom, root, here we go, of all teeth. They've been looking at a kind of fish called a cichlid, and they have teeth both in their mouth and also in the throat. And they've noticed that the development of both sets of teeth is controlled by the same sets of genes, the same genes also that control the patterns of the growth of hair and feathers in other animals. So they could shed some light on a number of evolutionary changes and questions that we're trying to answer. Well, Dr Todd Streelman is one of the authors on this paper. It's in the Public Library of Science this week. Hello, Todd. Hi there. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. So tell us a little bit about this discovery. How did you find this? Well, we study a, a very unique group of fishes from Lake Malawi in East Africa. And what's so fascinating about them is that they express a tremendous diversity of all sorts of things like color patterns and brain function and, and then of course also their teeth. So we were able to make use of this natural diversity to begin to ask the question about how they actually make teeth in two different places on their body. And once we found the answer to that, we put this information together with, with lots of information in the literature to try to understand how teeth were made a long, long time ago, and then also to try to understand the things in common between all teeth that we presently know about. So what was the sort of genetic clue that tells you where the, where the teeth had come from in the first place? Well, this is one of, the, one of the interesting things that many people don't know, is 
the coevolutionary history of teeth and jaws. So teeth first evolved about uh, half a billion years ago, and they evolved in organisms that did not have jaws, interestingly enough. So they evolved first in the pharynx, deep in the throat. And then, of course, they also evolved on the oral jaw, the jaw in the front of our face, when that jaw first appeared in vertebrate history. And so, as you mentioned, in the fishes we study, they have teeth both on the oral jaw, but they also have teeth back in this ancestral location for teeth. And so we use a technique called in situ hybridization, which is just a way to visualize where and when genes are active. And we studied a number of molecules that we had some inkling might be involved in dentitions. And so we identified two things. We identified this ancient set of genes. And that ancient set of genes is the set of genes that's on in the pharynx when teeth are made. And then secondly, we identified a core set of genes and that core set represents the gene network that's active in all teeth, from the fishes we study to sharks to mice, and of course in your teeth as well. I was going to say, when you study an early human embryo, you can see the same vestiges of the development of a, an early fish occurring in us. For instance, we get gills at certain stages of development too, don't we? We get these branchial arches, which uh, some of them turn into things like our eardrums and our tonsils. In fish, of course, there would have been gills, but superimposed on that is this pattern of genes that gives us teeth. That, that's right. And so the, there's a very old rule in evolutionary biology called ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. And so that just means that in a very coarse way, if you look at a contemporary organism, you look at its development, you can learn something about evolutionary vestiges by studying early phases of its development. That's one of the things we took advantage of. We also, of course, were able to identify some differences between this ancestral network active in these throat teeth and the core network that's active in the oral jaw teeth of most organisms. And we think those are probably some of the genes that tell us about some of the things that have changed as dentitions have evolved for half a billion years. So, for instance, in the fishes we study, they replace every single tooth about every 50 to 100 days. And so this is one of those things that we think, and other people have suggested also, links teeth to other structures like feathers and hairs that also have this capacity for regeneration. Of course, your teeth are replaced a single time, but other mammals, like the mouse, never replace their teeth. So these are aspects of, of dentitions that have been lost as teeth have evolved. And some of those interesting regenerative capacities are still present in both the pharyngeal and the oral teeth of the fish we study. We'll have to leave it there. Thank you very much. That was Todd Strillman, who is from Georgia Tech, and is explaining how they've found the genes that are the root of all teeth. And you never know, perhaps using those genes, we might be able to generate a new set of teeth for mine when they clap out. Thank you, Todd. Keeping you abreast of the world's best science, The Naked Scientists. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Helen Skells. We're talking about the science of love and sexual attraction this week. So if you have any questions, the email address for the programme is chris at thenakedscientist.com. And there's another way to listen to The Naked Scientist and you can chat about the science show with like-minded folks at the same time and that's in the virtual world of Second Life. We're live at 10am Second Life time every Sunday so if you want to join in, sign up for Second Life, visit the Scilands and then search for Naked Scientist and you can drop into our mansion, stretch out and relax on one of our sun lounges and listen to the show. 
Thank you, Helen. Quick question from Bill in Cambridge. He says there's quite a lot of water in the world, but how much is there in total? Does anyone know? Best estimate I know, Bill, is that we think there are 1.37 billion cubic kilometres of water on Earth. That's really quite a lot, isn't it? Now, it is Valentine's weekend. Lots of people have been sending and receiving romantic cards. I know I got one. Very funny. Won't repeat it. It was a bit smutty. Uh, It seems to be that sending love letters at any time of year is becoming a lost art. So we have to confine it just to Valentine's Day. And sometimes, however, a text message can be just as romantic. But what about trying to send a hidden message? Well, we're trying to bring this tradition back this year. And Ben and Dave are going to do it in Kitchen Science and show you how to do that. We've come over all romantic for this week's Kitchen Science because we are looking at the special hidden secret science of writing secret love letters. Now, Dave, what can we do to write a letter that can only be read by the person it's intended for? Well, if you use ink in your love letter, then obviously everyone's going to be able to read it. But the traditional thing to do is instead of using ink, to use something like lemon juice. So lemon juice acts as an invisible ink. Or we can try writing with some there. Okay, so I can see that you're using cotton buds, which are probably a little bit more clumsy than a normal pen, and you're using just a bottle of normal lemon juice. Well, you could use a fountain pen if you've got one, and you don't mind filling it full of lemon juice. (laughs) Um, But a cotton bud's probably safer, and and there's less to go wrong. Okay, well, I shall step back and let you write your secret note using lemon juice, and then I'll see if I can read it. This is obviously a very romantic time of year, and secret love letters are a very traditional way of showing how much you love somebody. Now, I must admit it is a bit strange receiving a special love letter from Dave, but I'll do it in the name of science. So, have you finished writing yet, Dave? Yep, here it is. The page is a tiny bit shiny from where it's still damp, but I can't read anything on that. So lemon juice definitely works as an invisible ink, But how on earth do we make that visible for the one person we do want to receive our message? What you should do with this is, when you want to read it, is heat it up. Um, I think the best way to do this is over the top of a toaster. Obviously, don't put your fingers in the toaster. It's very hot and electrical. And don't touch the paper while it's over the toaster. And don't stick the paper in the toaster. It might catch fire. But just hold it over the toaster until you can see something. So the heat from the toaster should make your lemon juice invisible ink visible. Yeah, that's the plan. And what I want people at home to do is maybe try the lemon juice, see if it works, and try other things they find lying around in the kitchen, see if any of those work. Well, knowing you, Dave, you wouldn't ask people to do something that you're not going to do yourself. So what have you brought in that you want to try using as invisible ink? We've got a variety of things, um, some salt, some sugar, some bicarbonate of soda, a variety of general household stuff. So just dissolve all of these in water and then use them as we've done with a cotton bud. Write yourself or somebody else a message and then hold them above a toaster. When we come back later in the show, we will test the lemon juice and see how well that works, see if I can read Dave's special message. And we'll also find out what other household chemicals make the best invisible ink. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm very keen to hear what Dave's special message to Ben Ben was. But if you have a secret message for someone else, try writing it in lemon juice, dissolving sugar, bicarb or salt. uh, Sorry, dissolved sugar, I should say. And um, get them to hold it above a toaster and see if they can read it. And if you get the message through, why don't you let us know? That's chris at thenakedscientist.com. But don't use lemon juice in your email. (laughs) Hey. Your keyboard gets all sticky and it'll get covered in ants and things. Very bad idea. Lifting the lab coats on the world's best science. The Naked Scientists. 
It's The Naked Scientist with Dr Chris and Dr Helen. We're talking about the science of love this week. We're finding out why it is that people fall in love and whether or not genetics dictates that you're going to have a wandering eye. That's still coming up. Joan in Braintree got in touch and says, why do we wake up when we need to urinate? Well, the answer is it's a reflex. It's the same reason that you roll over in bed when you get uncomfortable. If you stayed in one position in bed all the time, all night, you would get what's called a pressure sore because the pressure of tissue uh, against the bed would stop blood flowing through that area. And as a result, you would end up with a devascularized bit of skin and it would necrose. Patients who are left in one position in hospital for too long get exactly the same problem. So the body has a series of reflexes programmed into it, even when you're asleep, so that you can react and respond to various stimuli with an appropriate thing. So if you're getting uncomfortable in bed, you roll over. If, on the other hand, your bladder's getting full, then your brain says, wake up, you need to go and use the loo. So it's an automatic reflex. Some people lose that reflex as they get older. Some people, of course, when they're very, very little, actually wet the bed because it hasn't developed yet. And that's why little kiddies have to learn to respond to those signals the right way. And that's all about potty training and bladder training. Now, uh, why is it that we have that special someone in our lives? So special, in fact, that we want to stay with them for the whole of our lives rather than just go off and go out with multiple people. Some people do, of course, but on the whole... That's not the case. What's going on biologically is what we're asking to make us monogamous. Well, Professor Larry Young is from the Yerkes National Primary Research Centre at Emory University over in the States, and he's looking at the molecules that mediate this monogamy. Well, my research is really trying to understand the social brain, what makes us want to engage in social interactions and and form social relationships. And the way that I've been going about doing that is by studying these interesting little rodents called prairie voles. Now, prairie voles look somewhat like a hamster. They're from the Midwestern United States. And and what makes them so interesting is that, like people, they are monogamous. They form bonds between their partners. Now, you may think that that's not so strange, but in fact, in the animal world, only about 5% of species form any kind of relationship whatsoever with their partner. And so we, we do experiments to try to understand what is the chemistry or the genetics that is underlying their ability to form these lifelong bonds with the partners. What do you think the advantage to something like the prairie voles you're studying is to forming a monogamous bond? Because the fact that nature does it so rarely, as you point out, suggests that it could be disadvantageous under certain circumstances. Right. I think under most circumstances it probably is, at least for most mammals, uh, disadvantageous for them to form the bonds. Because after all, if you're a male... In most cases, you would think that it would your best strategy would be to mate with as many females as you possibly can. But there may be certain types of environments, like where the prairie vole lives, where there are certain predators around. And uh, if you're a male and you mate with females but don't help them take care of the offspring, and the female has to leave the babies in the nest every day while she forages, uh, maybe all of your babies are going to get eaten. And when you study the brains of these animals, because presumably this is a behavioural thing, choosing to be monogamous, what do you actually find? Well, we found that uh, in in the prairie voles, there's a molecule called oxytocin. This is a protein hormone that most of us know about because of its role in initiating labour, childbirth, and also uh, lactation. Well, this same molecule is known to be responsible for causing mothers to bond with their babies, It's also involved in the female bonding with the male. We know this because we can take a a female prairie vole and place her in the cage with a male and don't let them mate so they're not mating partners. But if we infuse a little bit of oxytocin into her brain, she will instantly bond with that male. 
We can also do a, a, the converse experiment where we block the oxytocin and let her mate with a male, and she will never bond with that male. Now, in males, it's a, a different molecule called vasopressin. It's a, also a protein hormone. It's really interesting that you can have a single molecule like this that plays such an important role in the ability to bond. Some people have suggested that the bonding process, as you yourself hinted at just now, is the same thing between, say, two adult humans as you get between a mother and her baby. And it's just that the, the, the love idea, the two people getting together, it's exploiting the same neurochemistry as when a mother bonds with her baby. Yeah, that's right. I think that's a very interesting point. And in all mammal species, you have this circuitry in the brain that allows the mother to bond with their baby and take care of the baby. That's an absolutely essential kind of behavior. Oxytocin is released when she gives birth and when she is nursing her babies. Well, oxytocin is also released in animals' mate. And so it seems that what happens on the occasion when evolution prefers the monogamy kind of behavior, that those circuitries get tweaked a little bit so that now the bond is not towards the baby, but in addition towards the male partner. So having sex does actually drive a stronger bond, establish trust between a male and a female, and, and that could be part of the role of, of this hormone system to make people who are going to have offspring bond together so they'll take care of that offspring. We believe that to be true. In fact, we know that oxytocin is, in, is involved in that. And it's interesting that you use the word trust because uh, there have been some studies in humans now to ask, does this hormone really affect human behavior and human thinking? And uh, the studies are pretty convincing that, in fact, it does. There was one study that showed that if you inhaled oxytocin, you'd trust other people more. You can actually infer their emotions better by just looking at their facial expressions. So it seems that oxytocin is sort of tuning us into the social world around us. You mentioned that in females it's the oxytocin playing the big role and in males there's a different molecule, arginine vasopressin. Why is there that dichotomy? And do the two hormones have the same effect in the opposite sex? They're just used differently. Uh, arginine vasopressin is a sexually dimorphic molecule, which means that males have much more of this than females. And if you look across the animal kingdom, you'll find that vasopressin tends to do the behaviors that are sort of the macho behaviors of that species. So in some species, it increases aggression, it increases territorial behavior. So whatever the males of that species typically do, that's what vasopressin controls. And so it seems when, when monogamy evolved in this species, it was tweaked a little bit so that the same hormone that controls macho behavior now controls this bonding behavior. And if we look at people that, that do seem to have a problem with a roving eye, they, they can't keep their hands off anyone of the opposite sex, do they have a problem with that hormone system then? <laughs> well, we, we don't know that for sure. You know, we're just at the very beginning of doing... Uh, human studies. But, but there has been an interesting study that came out that does suggest that the vasopressin receptor, which is the protein that responds to vasopressin very much like a, a key in a lock system, and there are variations in that gene. And we found in voles that if you have a certain variation of that receptor, you are much less likely to form an attachment with a female than if you had other variations. Well, a Swedish group has now done a very similar study in humans and found that individuals who have two copies of one particular variant of the vasopressin receptor gene are twice as likely to report that they have crisis in their relationship in the past year 
or twice as likely never even to get married in the first place, to remain in a live-in relationship but not commit to marriage. So it seems very possible that this system may, in fact, have some impact on our own ability to form relationships and the kind of relationships that we form. It's quite scary when you hear that, isn't it, to think that there are aspects of your genetics that determine whether or not you're going to be faithful to your partner. That was Larry Young. He's at the Yerkes Primate Research Centre over in America, and he was explaining there how different hormones can keep us faithful, but why some people are genetically predisposed not to be. Now, this is The Naked Scientist with Dr Chris and Dr Helen. If you'd like to join us on our love-in this week, talking about the mediators of sexual attraction, the email address is chris at thenakedscientist.com. So hormones do affect our sexual behaviour, it seems, but it also seems that they can affect how we advertise our availability. Dr Marty Hazelton is Assistant Professor at UCLA and she works on the changes we see in behaviour when women are at their most fertile. Well, we have Marty on the phone now. Hi, Marty. Hi. Thanks for coming on The Naked Scientist. Now, as well as sending out Valentine's cards, what other ways are there that we broadcast <laughs> our, our availability or our fertility as well, if you like? Well, we found in several studies uh, now that there are cues of fertility within the cycle. So there are subtle ways that women might be revealing whether they are in the fertile window of their cycle, whether they are near ovulation, the time when a woman is most likely to conceive. In one study, we found that uh, women wore more fashionable clothing during that time. In another study, very recent study that was just published, we found that women's voices became more feminine on high fertility days of the cycle. By more feminine, how do you, how do you mean, uh, what's the well, difference in the voice then? Specifically, so we recorded women's voices on uh, two, at two points in the cycle. One during the fertile window, the day of ovulation of several days beforehand, and then another period shortly after that, but before menstrual or premenstrual days. We did hormone tests to verify that women in their high fertility window were in fact close to ovulation. Then we took those vocal clips and we submitted them to acoustical analysis to see what the differences were between them. We have a couple of those recordings now. So shall we have a listen to those and uh, see see what they actually came out like? So first of all, um, we have one, I believe, that came at the low fertility part of the cycle. Hi, I'm a student at UCLA. And we should point out, actually, that uh, we've changed the voices a little bit so that you can't recognise who this is. So it's a little bit robotic, but that's just to keep their, the, uh, their identity hidden. But that's fine. So that was the low fertility one. Shall we have now listen to what, the same person at a different time, more fertile time of the cycle? Hi, I'm a student at UCLA. So what do you think that's telling us? <laughs> that's a great example. So the thing that we found that differentiated high and low fertility voices the most was vocal pitch. Women's voices are higher in pitch than than men's. This is one of the things that differentiates the sound of a male and female voice. And uh, hormones are associated with the uh, onset of those sex differences. So when girls go through puberty, their voices begin to sound more feminine. In particular, they become higher in pitch relative to boys of the same age. So we suspected that estrogen might play a role in this, and therefore we suspected that it might show differences across the cycle because estrogen varies across the cycle along with other sex hormones, which is precisely what we found. So it seems it could be these hormones that are changing our voices. And I presume, are we aware of this at all? I don't suppose we are. 
<laughs> no, I don't think that, that we're aware of any of these subtle clues of ovulation. In another study that we did, we found that women reported feeling sexier or more attractive on high fertility days of the cycle. They didn't know. We weren't asking them, so today is a high fertility day of your cycle. How do you feel? Instead, we just asked them questions repeatedly over a series of 35 days, and we found that they reported a slight upswing on near ovulation and, and how attractive they felt. So it's possible that there are many cues that are linked with attractiveness, including vocal femininity, that change across the cycle. So, And what happens when, because a lot of women these days are on the pill, which means that their hormones aren't moving up and down in that same way, um, and we don't have those peaks in fertility because our bodies are being convinced that they're um, actually fertile all the time. Do we know if that's having any effect? And is this, are women on the pill putting out different signals, perhaps? Well, so one of the clues that led us to do the voice study was that women on the pill, so around menstruation, there is thought to be a, a phenomenon of vocal, increased vocal hoarseness. Um, women who are professional singers report this. There's also some suspicion that women on the pill who are professional singers suffer some sort of a, a decrement in their vocal abilities. So it's possible that by taking the pill, these cues that would naturally vary across the cycle are blunted and removed, and voices might be overall slightly less feminine. We don't know that from our research, but that was some of the speculation that led us to do the study. Thanks, Marty. That was Marty Hazelton from UCLA telling us about how women subconsciously advertise their fertility with changes in their voice and sometimes the way we dress as well. Laying the facts bare. I say. The Naked Scientists. It's The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and Helen Scales, and we're talking about the science of love. Now, have you ever spotted someone that you just don't seem to be able to take your eyes off? The reason is that the person is possibly a bit more symmetrical than most. It's been known for a while that the more symmetrical a person is, then the more attractive we tend to find them. But Dr William Brown, who's at Brunel University, has been using three-dimensional scanning technology to look into the area a little bit more closely and to see just how finely tuned our senses for symmetry are. So we sent Mira Senthalingam down to Brunel to find out more about the research and also to find out about her own symmetry. Well, we've been doing several things, looking at the associations between symmetry and bodily attractiveness and also trying to improve the um, ability to measure these subtle asymmetries between the left and the right side of the body. Now, these asymmetries, I need to point out, are subtle. They're so subtle that we need to measure them with very precise equipment. And so what have you been doing here at Brunel to look into this? I met up with some people from the School of Engineering Design who had purchased a 3D body scanner that's used in the medical and textiles industries to get three-dimensional images of the human body quite quickly, about five to six seconds for a scan, 24 cameras around the individual, flashes optical light, and puts together a surface scan of that person's body. I'm using it for the first time to measure the subtle differences between the left and the right side of the body. Okay, so we are actually by the scanner, so it's my turn to actually go inside and have my body scanned. So, well, you've already taken my height and my weight, so now I guess I just have to get inside. Welcome to the NX12, TC Squared's new 3D body scanner. Place your feet as shown by the footprints on the floor and grip the handholds. When you are ready to start your scan, 
Press the button on the right hand Okay, so I've finished my scan now, which was quite a surreal experience, actually. Um, and we've got my body up here on the computer. So what can you see so far, Will? Because it's three-dimensional information, it's called a point cloud display. There's thousands of little points on the, on the body. The actual image is, is quite amazing because it is an entire person made up purely of lots and lots of dots. And so there is a measurement at each of these dots. Exactly. And in some traits, there's sub-millimeter accuracy in measurements. And what it's done is it's measured everything from girths to lengths. It tells me the um, waist circumference, the hip circumference. What's my leg length? <laughs> oh, we could, we could do um, something like we could get your ankle girth. Is, your right ankle girth is 269.9 millimeters. I cannot just eyeball this and say that you're more symmetrical than, or you're more asymmetrical than average because uh, we need to put this into a statistical software and compare you to the rest of the sample. It's very strange, actually, just so seeing myself there made up of many, many dots. So you had um, people analysing and rating then these 3D images of the samples you had? Yes, they were simply rating the 360-degree videos for attractiveness. And so what did you find? What we found was if they're a male with more masculine body proportions, for example, broad shoulders, they are uh, rated as more attractive. Females, though, with more curvy figures are rated as more attractive. That's not the interesting part because we already kind of knew and expected that sort of finding. The interesting finding is that individuals with more higher degree of sex-typical features, what I mean is guys with more masculine bodies, are in fact more symmetrical in the left and the right side of their traits. And women with more feminized bodies and physiques are more symmetrical in their bodies. And both symmetry and your degree of masculinity are associated with the attractiveness ratings. What do you think that it is about someone being symmetrical that is reflected for them to be more attractive? A lot of people in general, it may not be clear to them that it's not the asymmetries themselves that we're probably detecting. The asymmetries themselves are tapping into something very difficult to measure is, is how good your development is. If you are having poor development, which could be caused by all sorts of things, bad genes, bad environments, stress like pathogens or infection, starting off from the womb throughout development. I'll give you a quick example. Some of the work that was first done on asymmetry was done by fish biologists and wildlife biologists. And what they found was in polluted lakes and streams, the fishes there would have uh, more asymmetries. But the exact same species in, an, in a fresh lake that's not polluted were more symmetrical. So it was used as an indicator of maybe population stress. So what, what these subtle asymmetries are tapping into is probably poor development. Individuals that are better able to be better developers would be um, ideal mates because not just are you passing those genetic resources on, but if an individual's parasitized or ill, some of those environmental things can actually be passed on to your offspring or to the individual during copulation. So I'm assuming then that someone's symmetry can actually change throughout their life as well. So is it fair to say it would probably be at its peak when they're actually at their mating peak? Exactly. That is the hypothesis. There is some cross-sectional data, which means different people across different ages, supportive of that hypothesis. Because I think a lot of people fail to realize that it's not like you're born symmetrical and you stay in the exact same symmetry throughout your entire lifespan. Um, there's very few longitudinal studies done tracking youngsters all the way till when they're older. Development is not just about a one gene for symmetry. Development's a very dynamic process. It's going to be difficult, given your conditions, to develop the symmetrical phenotype. What they seem to find is early on in development, when you're going through that kind of growth spurt and putting on weight 
And the faster that rate is, the more asymmetrical you are because that's stressful to develop, right? And when you start to get beyond that growth spurt and hit, like you say, a peak mating period, you'd be more symmetrical. After that period, there may be some decline. You may expect individuals to become more asymmetrical and the rate of which will depend upon maybe your health and other factors. So a person reaches their most symmetrical state and therefore their most attractive form to the opposite sex when they're ready to mate. That was William Brown from the University of Brunel speaking to Mira Synthillingham. Now, William is keen for more volunteers to help develop his research. So if you think you'd like to take part, why don't you drop him a line? You can email him at william.brown at brunel.ac.uk. Thank you, Helen. Now, we are talking about the science of love this week, but since we're talking about the science of love and mating behaviour, why don't we look particularly at the purpose, evolutionarily speaking, of actually going to all that bother? It's a lot of hassle having to send Valentine's Day cards, having to buy boxes of chocolates and cook nice dinners. Why do we bother at all? Well, to help us understand a bit about the benefit of having sex in the first place is Robert Foley. He's the director of the Lever Hume Centre for Human Evolutionary Studies at Cambridge University. Robert, hello. Hello. Thanks for joining us on The Naked Scientist. So... Why have sex at all? Why aren't we just cloning ourselves, reproducing ourselves? Why don't we just give birth to a copy of ourselves and populate the world with millions of clones of ourselves like Greenfly do? Well, I mean, sex has been around for millions and millions of years and is uh, is one of the ways of uh, evolution operating. Uh, we don't fully understand why having two sexes rather than just one is the best thing. But once you've got it, it's absolutely critical. We often think of evolution as simply the survival of the fittest. It's how long you live that matters. It's not. It's how many uh, offspring you have. It's how many of your genes you can get into the next generation. So for a sexually reproducing organism, such as any animal, uh, it's absolutely critical, uh, your mating behavior and how you bring up your young. So, so much selection is focused on getting it right. What is the benefit of having two sexes and, and mixing genes up the way that effectively sex between two genetically unrelated individuals does? Uh, there have been a number of theories. Probably the, the best one is that it, it really jumbles up the genes in such a way that it partly allows uh, organisms to adapt to new environments. So as the environment changes, you're not stuck with something by endlessly re-scrambling. You're raising in a sort of lottery sense the chances of something better coming which will help you survive and the other is that probably the the ability to resist disease is one of the critical factors in this because uh, we know that some of the diseases associated with uh, some of the genes associated with resisting disease uh, are ones that evolve very rapidly and therefore would benefit from this reshuffling I suppose nature's full of good examples of what happens if you do just clone yourself, isn't it? We have potato famines in Ireland. We have the loss of the Cavendish banana because of Panama disease because bananas are all clones, aren't they? So I suppose that there is obviously a benefit because we're still here. We haven't succumbed to some horrible disease because we have sex. Yes, I think both systems, asexual and sexual reproduction, work very well in the right context. But I think once you're into very complex organisms, uh, of which uh, humans, primates, monkeys, animals, whatever, uh, are some, it probably just would be completely impossible to deal with this asexually. But what sort of flies in the face of what you're saying, Robert, is the fact that I chose my wife and I've married her, I have two children with her. If I wanted to mix my genes up as much as possible, then I wouldn't just stick with one person. So why do I want to do that? Well, if we look again, it's easiest to sort of look across animals and, and, and we see immediately there's an enormous variety of ways of reproducing and monogamy is just one. It's actually a very rare one. Most animals uh, will mate in a very promiscuous way and, uh, and then move on to the next partner. If we try and ask the question, 
under what circumstances do animals stay with one partner? The answer is, broadly speaking, it's where uh, the costs of bringing up offspring are very high. And we know with humans, we have a lot, take a long time to grow. We have a large brain. It's very expensive for the mother. And so somewhere in our evolutionary past, there has been a general tendency to increase the amount of parental care. And that means that females have to be very choosy and males have to hang around and help bring up the offspring in some way uh, or another. It's interesting, though, because if you look at those voles that Larry Young was talking about earlier in the programme, they have very large litters, and the costs are not that high because they're just sort of producing so many offspring that there's a chance they're going to survive no matter what. So does that same rule apply there? Well, the, there are a number of, um, number of different reasons why. The other reason is where a male might not be able to defend an area uh, or defend a number of females. In that sense, he's forced into monogamy. I, th- I think you know, one shouldn't get... Uh, two fixed ideas about monogamy and other forms. Actually, in practice, most animals are very flexible. They take the opportunity. So even birds that we think of as highly monogamous, turns out that something like 15% of their offspring are actually fathered by uh, another bird floating in and um, taking up the opportunities. That was delicately put, Robert. Thank you very much. That's Robert Foley, who uh, is from the Leverhulme Centre for Human Evolutionary Studies at Cambridge University. And I think the stat is that perhaps up to one in five humans doesn't have the father that they think they do. It's a worrying thought, isn't it, Helen? Absolutely. Well, now it's time for a very special question of the week. And we've sent Diana out to a coffee shop for the science of steaming milk. Hello and welcome to a very special question of the week from the Naked Scientists with me, Diana O'Carroll. This week, the hills are alive with the sound of steamed milk. Hello, my name is Mouse. I work as a barista and so I steam a lot of milk. When the milk gets to 140 degrees Fahrenheit, the sound that it makes abruptly drops pitch significantly. So I'm wondering why this happens. making milk change its tune. Hi, uh, my name's Hugh Hunt. I'm from the Cambridge University Engineering Department and we're sitting here in uh, Starbucks in Cambridge. So I've got an experiment here which actually makes the effect more apparent. I'm actually going to fill up a, a mug with just some cold water and then I'm going to put in a spoon of Alka-Seltzer. Now that's going to make it all fizz up. Now if I tap the bottom of the cup You can hear a noise. I'm just tapping it there. Now I'm going to put in a spoon of Alka-Seltzer now and stir it up. And now, I don't know whether you can hear that, but the pitch of the sound has gone right down. And now, if we wait a bit, the pitch... is coming back up again. If I give it a bit of a stir... down goes the pitch and then up it comes again so it's pretty clear this has got something to do with the bubbles now when you're frothing milk or when you're putting Alka-Seltzer into a cup you're turning water with no bubbles into water with bubbles and the bubbles add elasticity water is really highly incompressible so the presence of a few bubbles in the water make it a lot softer and anything that's softer like 
something bouncing up and down on a soft rubber band will have a lower frequency than something bouncing up on a stiff rubber band, which will have a higher frequency. Now, this is um, commonly called the hot chocolate effect, and some people call it the cheap instant coffee effect, uh, and it's pretty easy to do, but the explanation is not straightforward. Now, when it comes to milk, well, milk is a bit complicated, really, because when it gets hot, the proteins begin to denature, and this is going to affect the way it forms the froth or the foam. So the exact temperature when the effect becomes most pronounced will really depend on how much protein there is in the milk and things like that. But the basic effect is to do with the bubbles, and that can be most easily demonstrated with water. And on our forum, Jay Petricelli wrote that it's the denaturing of milk proteins at 140 degrees Fahrenheit that causes stable foam to form in cappuccinos. And this stable foam generates the change in pitch. So, very much like our expert's answer. Well, from stable foams to stable ecosystems now, and next week's question was sent in by a gentleman called Sir David Attenborough. Well, if you look at uh, trees growing in Europe, often closely related trees growing on exactly the same ground with exactly the same climate, they have different shaped leaves. Why? And people will say, oh, well, it's because the airflow over it is in the particular circumstances or the way that the water drips off it. That's the reason. But the trees are growing in exactly the same places alongside one another. Why? They have different shaped leaves. I don't know the answer. What's the point of all those different leaf shapes? If you know the answer, then drop us an email. Chris at thenakedscientist.com or write us on our web-based forum, and that's at thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum, where you can discuss what you think with other listeners. Thanks, Diana. She'll be back down from her caffeine fix and back in the studio next week with the answer to Sir David Attenborough's question. What a nice man he is and how privileged we are to have him asking questions for us. And uh, in the meantime, if you have a science question that needs Diana's special treatment, then you can drop her a line. Send us emails on chris at thenakedscientist.com. I actually think it's a bit cheeky of David Attenborough to get Diana doing his research for his next TV programme. Don't you think so? Oh, I don't know. I think he gets away with a lot because he's such a nice man. Bringing the facts to bear. The Naked Scientists. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and me, Helen Scales. Well, earlier we left Ben and Dave writing and testing out household chemicals to see which one would make the best invisible ink. Now I want to find out what those messages they were writing to each other were. So we'll go over it and see what they discovered. Welcome back to this week's Romantic Kitchen Science, where Dave and I have been sending secret notes in invisible ink to each other. Now, Dave, earlier on, you said that if we write something in lemon juice, then you won't be able to read it. But when we then hold it above a toaster, then the words will become clear. I think it's about time that we tested that out. Yep, I think we should. So we've got the message I wrote earlier, and we have a toaster, so I'll turn that on. And now I'll put the piece of paper on the top, being careful not to stick my fingers anywhere near the toaster. I can see that what Dave has written is not a particularly romantic comment, but it says science is great. So it may not be romantic, but it's definitely true. Dave, why is it that lemon juice is invisible before you heat it, but then it becomes visible as soon as you add heat? Well, there's a whole mixture of things in lemon juice. There's some water, obviously, which when you leave it to dry, it will evaporate off, so you've just got the solids left in there. You've got some sugar, got some proteins, and a bit of acid. So there's all sorts of different things in there, but which one is it that makes it go brown? 
Well, the important things for the, this kind of browning effect, probably at lowest temperatures, are probably the sugar and the proteins. Because if you've ever fried something with a bit of sugar in it, it always tastes lovely, like fry onions, very hot. They always get a lovely fried onions taste. And they do go a good brown colour as well, just like your Invisible Ink has done. Yeah, that's because if you heat up a mixture of protein and sugars, like you do when you fry onions, sugars and the proteins react together in something called the Maillard reaction to form a whole variety of chemicals, all of which are sort of brown-coloured and taste nice and give that lovely fried taste. You also said that we could try this out with various things from around the house. So I've written a message in water, and I also tried salty water. Do you think either of these will work? I'm not convinced, but we can give them a try. So I'll just switch the toaster on again. And so far, nothing's happening. (sighs) I think my secret message might never get through, Dave. Well, salt is a very, very unreactive compound. It's produced by reacting sodium and chlorine together, both of which are very reactive, and they're very happy together. So I'd be surprised if it did a lot to the paper. Okay, and the paper's definitely starting to go brown. It's starting to char. I think I should probably stop soon because we don't want to run the risk of setting this paper alight. But actually, you can... I think, Dave, this might have worked. You can just about read the writing on there. And in particular, the outline of the letters. Dave, would you care to see what it is that I've written? You appear to have written kitchen science. (laughs) So, despite the fact that we don't have the same chemistry going on, it seems that actually salt may have actually worked. Well, if you heat that paper enough, it will go brown of its own accord. Obviously, a little bit of salt will affect the temperature and the rate at which that happens a little bit. To be honest, I'm quite surprised. Well, the salt water was a bit of a shocker. We didn't think it would work, but it has done. And now we have plain water on paper. It's quite easy to see where the paper has been wet because it's distorted. This really could be a surprise because there's nothing there to react at all. It's just water and paper. And the water should have evaporated by now anyway. So really, we should just be heating paper. The whole thing should go a sort of uniform brown. And as the paper starts to go brown, just like it did with the salt, you can just about see an outline, but that's almost impossible to read. Again, I'm quite surprised by this one. There's a couple of possibilities. One of them is that the paper's still slightly damp, so it's keeping the temperature of the paper down slightly. Uh, There's a couple of other things it might be. One of them is that we live in a hard water area here in Cambridge, so there'd be quite a lot of dissolved calcium carbonate in the water, and then that might be weakening the paper and making it brown slightly earlier than everything else. Or it might be just that it's stopping the paper being flat and the shape of the paper is affecting how quickly it heats up and so when it browns. Okay, well they obviously don't make very good invisible ink but we've found that you can just about get your message across using water or salty water. Dave, you were trying things that we expect would be a little bit better. So what have you tried? So we've got some bicarbonate soda here which is sodium hydrogen carbonate. That's immediately going brown. That's very, very good, actually. The paper is hardly browned at all, but the bicarb, and it does say bicarb, that was your choice of message, has immediately gone brown. That actually makes a very, very good invisible ink. Bicarb to say is quite alkali, which makes the paper weaker. And the alkali means that the paper can brown at much lower temperatures than it would do otherwise. So we know that bicarb is an excellent source of invisible ink. What else did you try? I tried some sugar as well. And just like the bicarb, that's appeared very quickly. It's very bold, a sort of high contrast against the white paper in the background. This one, I think, is basically because if you heat up sugar, it caramelises. All the individual sugar molecules react together and forming long strings. Basically, it's called a polymer. And these longer sugar strings, A, make it much stickier, which is the reason why toffee is so sticky, and they also go dark colours. And if you smell that very carefully... 
It does smell sweet. It smells sort of popcorn-y and, and toffee-like. Well, that's amazing. So you can actually make your secret love letters even more sweet by using sugar water, which it turns into toffee when you try and read it. Fantastic stuff. Well, I hope that you tried this out at home. There are lots more experiments you can try out, including using red cabbage juice to tell acid from alkaline. That might be a good way to tell if you live in a hard or soft water area. They're all on our website at thenakedscientist.com slash kitchen science. For next week's experiment, we're going to show you how you can use things that you may have lying around the house for a bit of stargazing. Thanks, guys. Uh, and Dave says he's really interested to know if water would still work in a soft water area, not like here in Cambridge. So if you want to have a go, perhaps you could let us know if it works. Thank you, Helen. It is the Naked Scientist, Chris and Helen. We're talking about the science and evolution of love, monogamy and sex this week. And just to get towards the end of the programme, uh, Robert Foley's here from Cambridge University. We've got a question on uh, flounders, Robert. Tina Beerkat, who's in Second Eye, says, well, if symmetry and attractiveness go hand in hand, what does this mean for flounder, those those fish you see on the bottom of the sea? Uh, well, symmetry is good, but I guess it, it isn't always good. Like everything else in evolution, uh, when selection is strong enough, it will change things. And the benefits of being able to see for a flounder clearly outweigh the benefits of being uh, the, the, the benefits of symmetry, and so evolution has shaped it. So it yet again shows there are many different ways of surviving and reproducing in nature. Thanks, Robert. We've got a question from Katie O'Rourke, who very briefly, effectively says in her question, can you read the genes that a person carries by looking at their facial structure? Well, not directly. Um, fortunately, we don't all come with genetic labels on our faces like barcodes, but we do uh, know that, that our facial structure is, is, like everything else, strongly under genetic control. Uh, what we also know is that people are extraordinarily good at recognising faces. If the experiments have shown that we can pick faces out of very complex backgrounds and that that is enormously important for us to be able to separate individuals out. So the answer is almost certainly yes. It's one of the best things we're at. And, of course, we can do it between individuals and very easily between populations. Thank you very much. Thanks, Robert. That was Robert Foley from Cambridge University. Thank you also to Todd Streelman, Larry Young, Marty Hazelton, Will Brown and Hugh Hunt for appearing in this week's programme. Next week, we are gazing into the void of space because it's the International Year of Astronomy, 400 years since Galileo first made his astronomical observations, and we'll be going there too. Join us next week if you can. The Naked Scientist podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com. Listener.